Welcome to this week's Thinking Commercially podcast, a brand new podcast, which I've just finished recording with Chris Stokes. And um, we're thinking it's pretty good, but we need your feedback as well. It's a brand new initiative um, brought to you by Bright Network, um, the careers network connecting students and graduate employers, and also in partnership with Chris Stokes, and all about a core skill which we know students are looking to develop their commercial awareness. So in this, we um, delve into the topics of government spending, flyby in the aviation industry, football clubs, commercial property, and ending on cinemas versus Netflix and other streaming services. Let's crack on. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new podcast all about commercial awareness with me, Ben Triggs, and author and commercial awareness guru, Chris Stokes. A massive welcome to you, Chris. Thank you very much, Ben. Hello, everybody. So um, what we're going to be doing is say it's a brand new podcast, brand new concept. Um, We know that lots of students, lots of recent graduates, lots of young people want to know more about commercial awareness and develop their understanding of core themes, how businesses work. And this is what this podcast is going to bring. Um, And what better way to uh, sign off a brand new podcast with um, the expert himself. A lot of you will know um, Chris's books, all you need to know about commercial awareness, all you need to know about the city. Um, But Chris, before we get into um, the nuts and bolts of this podcast, it would be great to hear a little bit about your career and uh, understand what you've been up to. Sure, Ben. Thank you. Um, I I was originally a banking lawyer, um, and then I became a business and finance journalist. And although I was a banking lawyer in the city, that's not how I learned about the financial markets and about commercial awareness. It was really through being a a journalist. Um, As a result of being a journalist, I uh, became the business development partner in a city law firm. And that led to my teaching on an MBA for lawyers. And that in turn led to uh, management consultancy for law firms focusing on strategy and business development. And it was that exposure through the MBA program, teaching on it, and also as a consultant, that's when I really became commercially aware. And then after I'd done that for a while, I decided I want to go back into a law firm uh, to see how much things had changed since I'd become a consultant. And so I joined what is now Hogan Lovells and became Director of Knowledge, Research and Learning. And I'm still a consultant there and provide uh, uh, training design and delivery for the firm. Amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. And I think um, I am absolutely in awe of of Chris's knowledge and he's done many podcasts, read his books as well. I'm sure a lot of people listening would have done um, the same. But this is a first, I believe, Chris. This is the first time you've been on a podcast before, isn't it? It is indeed. I'm very excited by the prospect of it, Ben. Yeah, me too, actually. I've been... um, over the last couple of weeks since we had the uh, idea of, uh, of doing it, I think um, I've definitely been looking forward to it um, and really delighted that we're able to record it, especially now. Um, we know we're all in lockdown. We know lots of students are, are you know, stuck in sort of student bedrooms and shared houses as well. So hopefully we can um, spread a bit of knowledge. Um, spread hopefully a little bit of joy as, as, as well and give you something to listen to as well. Just as way of introductions, um, as I say, my name is Ben Triggs. I'm the marketing director at Bright Network, also the writer of the commercial awareness update, which goes out weekly to Bright Network members. Um, so to give you a little bit of intro about this podcast, what we're going to do, we're going to cover three to four topics each month. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a current story, something that's been making or keeping us interested in the last month and discuss a couple of the core themes and what to look out to as a student to start developing your business knowledge and your commercial awareness. Um, If you're all ready, Chris, let's crack on with the first story. What we thought we'd uh, discuss, first of all, is... um, um, Something it, it, it's come to the fore because of, of COVID, but all of these big financial numbers which are being bandied about, uh, you know, how much the government is borrowing, for example, how much it's putting into the economy. Um, and we thought it'd be quite helpful just to focus on these big numbers because it's quite difficult to get a sense of what they actually mean. Um, this is something I'm, I'm sure many of you will have heard of somebody called Tim Harford, 
the undercover economist who has a program on the radio and, and appears on TV regularly talk, talking about stats and what stats can and can't be used for. And one of the things that he's very keen on, and I was really interested to hear a, an economist statistician talk about these things is actually getting a general sense of figures without being too precise about them. So um, I think, Ben, that's what we thought we would go with first off. Yeah, definitely. It would be good. I think, as as you've sort of discussed, that, you know, there's lots of figures coming out over the last sort of nine months. It's the cost, what the government is borrowing, um, how much the government is putting into certain projects like the, the the furlough scheme and protection. And I think getting a bit of a sense of that, Chris, from from you and understanding maybe a bit of an overview of sort of the direction it's taking, um, but also, you know, your sense of what the government is trying to weigh up. Um, and then also, I think, gets that bigger picture of um, putting those big numbers, those stats into perspective. Um, so let's start, yeah, a bit of an overview of, uh, of what you're seeing. Well, the, the, the starting point, and I, I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but the starting point is uh, to think in terms of billions, not, not millions. So when we're talking about government expenditure, we're very much talking about billions. Um, there, there are there's a difference in terminology between the states and and the uk over things like trillions and billions and so on but the the way the way i define uh, a billion is a thousand million um and in general in general terms i think of the uk government as spending uh, a thousand billion a year in other words, that's what we call a trillion, but I prefer to keep it in billions because it's just easier. So the UK government spends roughly about a thousand billion a year, and that is roughly speaking about 40% of the country's GDP, what it produces. So the country's GDP is, is basically uh, uh, 2.2, 2.3 trillion at a guess but certainly what the government spends is 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 one trillion that that's a thousand billion now if you then think about what the government is borrowing at the moment one of the things that ben and i want to talk about a bit later on is is this a good thing to be doing right now that the the government uh at the start of the pandemic thought it would have to borrow an extra roughly 300 billion so I immediately thought, okay, well, 300 billion, that's about a third of its annual expenditure. That, that's what we're talking about here. Um, the government already has uh, debt. The, 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 the UK's debt is at the moment roughly 2 trillion. So basically, it's roughly two years expenditure. That, that is the government's debt. So it's proposing to increase that from Two trillion to roughly two point three trillion. Um, so, actually, in the scheme of things, if you're borrowing about a third of your annual expenditure to meet something as as uh, uh, something as massive and unexpected as a, as a pandemic, that's kind of that's not too too bad. That that that's my immediate thought. What do you think, Ben? Well, I think so. There was a um, stat, I think, that said the cost of the pandemic was 210 billion for that first six months. So you'd expect if it's on the same sort of wavelength, we're almost hitting that um, 300 billion at the at the moment. Obviously, in the last couple of weeks, the furlough scheme has been extended to the spring. Um, there's been more commitments. Um, well, very good news that we've had very recently. We're recording this uh, podcast that we've got. Uh, a vaccine and um, distributing that vaccine as, as as well is going to cost significant money. So if it does raise up to sort of, let's say more like, you know, 500 billion, does that sort of change things? Or do you still think actually, given the um, what's happened, you know, it, it's, it's something that obviously was necessary for, for supporting business. And I guess that's the key part of it, making sure that businesses um, function throughout the, the uh, throughout the pandemic and beyond and possibly save the month, the, the government money in the long run because there's less there's more people in jobs if we can keep our uh, economy going that that's exactly right I, I think the government's thinking is if we didn't provide the support that we're providing everybody will be out of work businesses will be wrecked and we're going to have to provide 
all of that in social security and benefit. So it's going to cost us a fortune anyway. Far better to spend the money we would otherwise be spending supporting businesses so that when the pandemic is over, those businesses emerge from it and they are still going and they're still able to employ people. So the furlough scheme is kind of a bridging scheme to, to keep to keep people on the payroll uh, until such time as businesses can go back to to you know the 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 normal state of affairs um just just one other thing just talking about the numbers that i find really useful when when thinking about these things um how does this relate to the size of a business um and i suppose the way i look at it is that your your average uk listed company let, let's think of businesses that we know like supermarkets they're worth between about 5 and 10 billion uh, you get really big businesses like uh, Reckitt's or Unilever. Uh, Reckitt Benkisser is worth about 50 billion and Unilever is, is worth between 50 and 100 billion. Um, so I, th th what I try to do is relate government expenditure at the kind of macro level to what does this mean in terms of the size of, of businesses? And you may well have come across the term unicorn business, which is basically a business that is still privately owned. It hasn't gone public or been listed. And unicorns are businesses that are worth a billion. So that, that's pretty big. And you might have heard the term FTSE 100, the 100 largest uh, companies listed on the London Stock Exchange by, by market capitalization. And outside the FTSE 100, the, the next are, are the, the FTSE 250. And a FTSE 250 company would be roughly between uh, one and five billion or between five and 10 billion. So that's how I try to keep these things in, in relation to each other when talking about these, these big, big figures. But just going back to what you're saying, Ben, that's exactly right. The government's thinking is we're going to have to be spending a lot of money anyway. Let's see if we can't do it supporting business for when this is over rather than just waiting till businesses disappear. And then we've got to pay all of this money out because everybody's out of work. Perfect. And something to touch upon on the big figures, when you um, talk a little bit about being worth um, 10 billion or 5 billion or 100 billion, as we, we talked about with, uh, with Unilever, um, how, do, how would you say that people are assessing that? How do the financial markets or analysts assess how much a company is worth? That, that's a really interesting and quite tricky question because um, essentially what they're looking at, what analysts are looking at is the, the, the future income that this business is going to generate. So they're looking at what is the value of this business given the future income that's going, going to generate. And it's the future income and the likely levels of future income that will dictate the, uh, the, the current value of, of the business. And in fact, the surprising thing is that the markets, after the initial shock of the pandemic, when obviously they, they went down because what markets don't like is uncertainty, after, after quite a short while, they kind of regained stability. Uh, and it was as if their view was, well, we know the short term is uncertain, but equally, we know that in two or three years time, this is going to be history because a vaccine will come along, we'll find a way to cope with this. So markets in the longer term can be remarkably sanguine about these, these events. Um, and certainly, I mean, from an investor's point of view, if, you'd, if you had money in the market and on the 1st of January you went to sleep and then you woke up on the 31st of December, although the markets would have rocketed up and down in the meantime, you probably wouldn't actually notice much difference to your investments overall, you know. Um, so markets can be surprisingly, uh, uh, as I say, sanguine, surprisingly stable when it comes to these shocks. Amazing. And one final thing I want to touch on upon this kind of idea of big numbers and big corporations. There's obviously been a lot talked about um, around the big tech companies um, having too much influence, too much power. I don't want to go there. Maybe that's a, a story for another another time. Um, but there was a story that sort of was talked about in, I think it was August or September, that Apple's size, which I think is um, talking of 2.3 trillion, I think it's approximately 2.3 um, $2 trillion dollars or 1.7 trillion uh, pounds. 
um, was compared to the size of the entire UK or the FTSE 100 uh, companies and the entire UK economy and suggesting that Apple was bigger than, than, than the value of, of all of those companies or the value of the UK economy. How does that sort of work in reality? What does that sort of mean when they, people talk about that? Well, you see, it's really interesting because, again, this is where government expenditure and, and the value of companies kind of come together. Because, But basically, Apple's value is the amount of UK debt, which is quite mind-blowing, really. And the idea that its, its total value exceeds that of the 100 biggest UK-listed companies, um, which come to about one and a half trillion, uh, again, is, is, is quite mind-blowing. But I, I tend to think of these figures as being a bit abstract because, of course, if everybody then tried to sell Apple shares at the same time, then the price would absolutely collapse. But I think what it spoke to was, was two things. One is uh, Apple is market dominant in a sector that is still going places. It's the most exciting sector to, to be in, 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 in business terms. But secondly, it was a direct reflection of the immediate impact of the pandemic, because as we know, with people working from home, um, using things like Zoom, for example, technology stocks have benefited enormously from that. And actually one reason why the UK market has tended to, to lag the US and other markets over the last few years is because in the UK, we don't have the equivalent of the top uh, US tech stocks. So I think it was really a, a reflection of that. Amazing. I actually, I actually lied. Unfortunately, Chris, I do have one more question on on this because you sparked something uh, quite interesting in that last little bit. We're going back to the government debt. So I think there's a lot of things, and actually, something which I maybe when I was a student um, didn't really get my head around. Um, obviously, we talk about um, government debt being in the the, the trillions or billions at, at certain points. Um, but what most, what many of the kind of the politicians or economists talk about is um, is reducing the deficit. Um, could you give a little bit of insight to to people what the difference is between the debt or the total debt and the deficit? Um, absolutely, and and that's a, a really good example, Ben, of of language and jargon being used to confuse, because you know most normal people would think that deficit just means kind of how much you owe. But actually, what deficit really means is the rate at which the debt is growing. So if the deficit is coming down, it sounds great, but that doesn't actually mean to say that our totality of, of UK borrowing is coming down. What it actually just means is it's not going up quite as quickly as it was before. So uh, de deficit, it, it's, it's one of those uh, slightly... Um, uh, tricky terms that is used to mean something uh, uh, wider than it actually does. But while, while we're on terminology, I just want to cover a couple of other things that I think people might find useful. And that's the difference between um, the terms fiscal and monetary. So when people are talking about governments and, and how they're managing the economy, they talk about um, uh, the, the monetary side of things and the fiscal side of things. And the way to think of this is that monetary is what the central bank does. So monetary is about controlling the amount of money in the economy and controlling the interest that, that is payable on a loan. Whereas fiscal is what the gov government actually does with the taxes that it raises. So first of all, fiscal means the government's policy in terms of how much it raises by tax, but secondly, what it's going to do with the tax that it raises. And so people have been, when you hear the term uh, fiscal stimulus, what it basically means is government is spending to encourage the economy. So uh, what, one of the things that, that has been talked about is, is um, whether the government is going to go through with a lot of the infrastructure projects that it's talked about, for, for, for example, the, the Northern Powerhouse. I mean, just, just uh, sorry, this is rather geeky, but, but at the outset of the pandemic, just at the start of it, I noticed that our local roads here, quite a lot of work had been done on potholes and the, um, and the white lines had been repainted. And I thought to myself, ah, that's fiscal stimulus. 
That's the government putting money into local councils' hands, which they're then spending on, on you know, really necessary routine maintenance. But that's a kind of a small local example of, of fiscal stimulus where, where uh, government central and, and local are spending money. And that obviously stimulates the economy because if, if um, money is being put in, into maintenance of roads and so on, then the businesses that are doing that take on more people to do it and those people have money in their pocket to spend and so on. But I think that's quite an interesting um, uh, uh, dichotomy to to think about the difference between a fiscal stimulus and and then uh, the monetary side of things as well amazing chris no that is brilliant let's go on to the next story there's so much i could have covered on that story i think like um something you said there got me thinking about quantitative easing which has been announced recently but um, if you guys are listening to this podcast, keep telling us um, what you think of it. Um, keep telling us what you want to hear covered. Maybe that's something that we could cover in later episodes. This is something that's very new to us. Um, so do share your feedback as well. So the second story that we've picked out this week is something that we, me and Chris have been discussing um, bits and pieces on the various calls that we've had preparing for this podcast is about the aviation industry, um, flights, aeroplanes, everything um, like that. And first of all, the kind of the problems that it's having at the moment, but potentially some of the the, the longer longer term troubles that it's been having. And you might have heard about uh, Flybe going into bankruptcy at the start of uh, lockdown um, after many years of, of, of sort of sort of troubles. And um, so we want to focus a little bit on, on that, but also talk more widely about uh, bankruptcy and some of the legislation um, around that as well. Um, hopefully we'll keep it as interesting, as exciting as, as, as it possibly, possibly can be for you guys at home. Um, but Chris, do you want to give a little bit of a, a, a synopsis, a bit of introduction into um, what's been happening at Flyby to kind of get us started? Uh, yes, um, Flybe was the the largest European regional airliner, and um, um, what that means is that, um, uh, and, and I, I automatically here think of people who've got second homes in places like France, because what makes those things possible is that there are a lot of really small regional airports that mean that if you've got a place in France, you don't have to just drive there over the channel, you can fly there. And um, a lot of people have, have, have done that because the, the whole explosion in air travel has meant that people can fly to places that otherwise wouldn't be uh, quite as reachable. But that has led to absolutely in, intense competition. And Flybe in particular was in competition with a regional uh, rival called, called Logan Air. And it was already an industry that was under quite a lot of pressure. Um, you, you might have come across, for example, Mike O'Leary from Ryanair, who's always talking about the pressures on, on the industry. Um, just to give you a sense of this, you might think that airlines own their own planes, but actually very few of them do. They tend to lease their planes. And certainly EasyJet during the pandemic, they actually sold off a number of planes that they owned basically to banks that then leased them back to them. Now, the reason for mentioning that is that um, airlines don't actually have a lot by way of assets. They are separate businesses from the airports that they use, and they are really quite strongly driven by cash flow. You've got to have people in the planes paying fares to have any business at all. So once you strip out things like assets like planes, you've really, you're really just left with a service. And if you're in a very competitive market and then you're hit by the pandemic, which stops people traveling, then you've got, you, you, your, your, your problems just pile up. And on top of that, there's, there's a kind of uh, what, what I would call a, a paradigm shift or secular trend, which is that with climate change, people are becoming much more self-conscious about flying anyway. And so I think all of these things taken together have meant that the aviation industry, the, the airline industry, uh, has really been under some pressure. And although he does own an airline now, Warren Buffett, the 
probably the most famous investor in the world. He he's he's always said never buy things with wings, <laughs> by which he meant don't invest in in airlines. Um, and Terry Smith, another very well-known fund manager, was once asked by an investor in his fund, uh, why, why don't you buy airlines? And he said, well, they're not very good investments. And the investor said, well, if you don't, if you're right, you don't buy them, who's going to fund them? And Terry Smith said, well, it's not my job to fund businesses that don't make money. Um, so I think Flybe was really just a victim of something that was going to happen anyway but has simply been accelerated, like a lot of business trends, by, by, um, by the pandemic. But then what happened was, and this, this often, ha- often happens with businesses, a, a bidder came in and took over the business. And you might think, well, why would they do that if the business was struggling? And, and the answer is, you can, you can acquire a business at a rock-bottom price without any of its debt if it's on the point of going into administration. And this is something that uh, the UK is imported from, from the US. So in, in the US, there's something called Chapter 11, uh, kind of bizarre name. But what it actually is, is it's Chapter 11 of the US Insolvency Code. And what it says is that a company can declare a moratorium. It can basically say, uh, we're not paying our debts. We're not going out of business, but we're not paying our debts. We're just going to take time out to reorganize our business in the expectation that when we start trading again, we will be able to pay our debts. And that has over time been imported into the UK system. And and actually, just recently, the government has announced a a new piece of legislation which has come into effect called the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020, which actually provides for a very short-term moratorium for businesses hit by by the pandemic. So that's the basic background to, to Flybe, teetering on the edge of insolvency, then rescued out of it. And my understanding on it is that the reason why it's the person who wants to go and buy, even though it might not be functioning particularly well as a as a as a full business entity, because they can almost take what they want. They can take the brand, for instance, which obviously people know and love if they're you know flying to, as you say, those regions in France or or, or Spain as well, um, and almost you know produce or come out of like a, like a phoenix, I guess, out of the ashes, come up with this um, brand new sort of business, which potentially could be more viable? Yes, that's exactly right. Because essentially what happens um, is that most businesses, if they get into trouble, they get into administration. So uh, somebody called an insolvency practitioner, who's basically an accountant, takes over and runs the business. And, and, And the insolvency practitioner, the administrator, has got three alternative goals. Well, one is to to rescue the business. One is to sell the business. And finally, if either of those is impossible, to basically wind it up and sell the assets off. And in all three cases, what what you're trying to do is to protect the creditors, the people who are owed owed money by, by the business. And what the recent UK legislation is beginning to reflect is is a US uh, thing called debtor in possession. So debtor is somebody who owes money. And we know here that when businesses are in trouble, it's the creditors who are owed money who are most exposed. And the idea here is the debtor in possession. In this case, it's the directors of the business. They stay running the business because they know the business better than, than an insolvency practitioner does. And the idea is that they then uh, run the business, it's protected during this moratorium, and then it is able to emerge in a reorganized way. And the overall effect of that, and it's a bit like going back to talking about the government supporting businesses during the pandemic. The idea is that the creditors are actually going to get more back from the company if it trades through the moratorium and emerges the other side than if an insolvency practitioner comes in, winds the business up, sells off the assets, and there are never enough assets to meet the claims. The creditors wouldn't do as well that way. So the whole point is to try to preserve businesses that are viable so that actually the creditors are more likely to come out whole than if the business was, was wound up and the bits sold off. 
Perfect. And in this case for um, Flybe, the administrators were EY. Um, they have now been um, taken over, as we've sort of discussed. Will Would EY see that as a success, would you say, as the administrators, um, what's happened? Um, absolutely. The, 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 and, and it's no accident that it was EY, a major accountancy firm, because as I say, insolvency practitioners, they, they tend to be accountants. You also get lawyers who specialize in insolvency, but they're more, they're, they're more looking at the legal side of things rather than the numbers. So their role as administrators was to step in, safeguard the business, understand the assets, and then start dealing with the, with the creditor's claims. And, and one of the bits of jargon that arises here is something called a prepack. And a prepack, it means prepackaged administration. A prepack is when the administrators take over, but somebody's already expressed interest in taking parts of the business off their hands. And usually what happens in that circumstance is that the, the debt is cancelled. So holders of debt emerge with nothing, but the trade creditors are protected because the, the, the prepack enables the business to carry on often under the ownership of the, the previous uh, uh, shareholders in, in the business. And if they want to maintain the business, they are likely they don't have to, but they're likely to want to honor commitments to uh, the creditors who will often be customers and suppliers if they want to keep the, the, the business going. Amazing. And I think um, to bring it back into the real world, and um, I don't want to turn this into that Peter Crouch podcast here by sort of going straight into football, um, but most a lot of people, especially if you follow sport, will um, the most frequent time that you hear about something going to administration is is football clubs. And there's obviously the, you know, potentially a, you see the points deduction. So at the start of each season, um, this season, I think it was Sheffield Wednesday in the in the championship that had a points deduction for for various bits and pieces, but often you'll see a couple of clubs there. Um, we lost Barry last last season down the down the leagues as 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 well. But often that's talked about. Does it work the same way um, when it comes to football clubs? Is there any kind of nicheties around it? This is really interesting, and, and actually, for those of you who are interested in football and want to develop your commercial awareness, it's a really good sector to look at because it's a really bizarre business. Because the people who care most about the football club don't actually own it. They're the fans. They're the owners are usually people who've been successful in business. And it's a, you know, it, was, it was a childhood enthusiasm there. So they take over a club and then they discover that actually a football club is really just a collection of liabilities. I and mean, those, those expensive players, you know, you're having to pay them a ton of money. And usually the only real asset a football club has is its ground. And there are many stories in the past of um, uh, uh, dealings over the sale of clubs where the ground hasn't gone with the club. So basically, the previous owner has basically sold off a set of liabilities and held on to the ground as the only thing uh, worth any money. But the, the reason why whenever, and, and on the one hand, it's awful when football clubs go out of business because they are the center of their local communities and there are a lot of stakeholders, but it's often not as bad as it sounds because when you think about it, what can you use a football ground for other than playing football? So if a local club goes bust, it may temporarily go out of business, but no doubt some local business and businessmen will come along buy the ground from the administrators and start a new football club. And I mean, that there are lots of examples of football clubs where this has happened, not necessarily in an insolvency situation, but uh, you may remember when, when uh, uh, Wimbledon uh, as of old was taken over and became MK Dons and the original Wimbledon fans really resented this and they revived the football club. And actually, it was using uh, uh, the football pitch of Kingstonian, which is a, a non-league club, very, very small pitch. Wimbledon used that for a while, and then they managed to start putting themselves uh, uh, back up the football pyramid and enter the, the uh, English Football League. So when, when clubs go bust, the interesting thing is that the most tangible, most visible aspect of the club, its ground, is still there. And that means there's always hope for something that is a new legal entity, but basically is a football club, the football club, to come back into business. 
Definitely. I b- Before we get down too much into a rabbit hole, I think that covers the story. I was going to start talking about um, my being actually going to the ground uh, myself. I've been to Wimbledon many times watching uh, my club, Wickham Wanderers, that was incidentally a fan zone club up until um, about nine, nine months ago. Um, and has actually enjoyed much success uh, over uh, since its uh, revival, um, going back into sort of uh, a private businessman going into it as well. My our editor, Joe, is looking at me on our Zoom call, suggesting that definitely won't be going into, into the uh, podcast anytime soon. So let's move on to our third story. So the third story for this week is all about the commercial property market. Um, the main reason being is because, you know, I've been into the office, not at the moment, but been into the office over the over the summer and um, in central London. And it is a little bit of a, a little bit of a ghost town at the moment. And all of my friends, I'm sure people um, that, that you guys know listening to the podcast, people that might be a bit older than you or in work are all working remotely at the moment, or most of them are. Um, less people going to the office in sort of tertiary sector, service sector, sector roles. Um, we'd heard before the pandemic about, you know, communal workspace being a bit of a in troubled times, especially we work as, as, as well. But I guess from a starting point, all of these big office spaces, it's clearly not a good time to be off, having lots of office space in central London or other, other big, big cities. Um, but yeah, Chris, could you give us a bit of insight on your thoughts around um, commercial property and potential challenges as our trends have moved towards working remotely? When it comes to commercial property, I think this is a really good area in which you can develop commercial awareness. If you're looking around and thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure any of this stuff in business terms is terribly interesting. I, I think commercial property is a way in because you, you see all of these office blocks and and you think, well, who owns them? And often it's quite a surprise because um, most, most office blocks are owned by institutional investors like insurance companies and pension funds. And they, they are very long-term investors in property. It's just one of the many assets that they hold. But the property market is interesting because, um, as some some old property tycoon said many, many years ago, you know, uh, God's not making any more land. So you might think, therefore, that the only way property can go uh, in value is up. And yet that's not the case, because a lot of um, owners of property, uh, speculative investors, in other words, not people like uh, insurance companies and pension funds, but but often entrepreneurial people, um, they are, they borrow a lot of money in order to invest it in property. So what they're looking at, they're not looking at the scarcity of property. What they're looking at is, um, can I get a return from owning this office block that is greater than the interest that I'm paying on on the loan? And that's a function of how many tenants you've you've got in the block, and also it's a function of of something called yield, which is what is the rent. Uh, that you're receiving in relation to the, the cost of the property. And these things can become quite mathematical and, and scientific. But the way, the, way, the way to keep it simple for my mind that I like to look at it is you've got these institution investors on the one hand, but there's a whole intermediate space of property owners. So you've got people like Hammerson and Into that own shopping malls. And of course, because again of this shift to e-commerce and immediately because of the pandemic, people not being allowed to go to shopping malls anymore, their share prices have been really badly hit. But then in London itself, you've got companies that specialize in developing office blocks. And what they do is they tend to take over old office blocks, refurbish them or knock them down and rebuild them and then let them and then often they will sell them to an institution investor. So some of the names in this field are names like Derwent London and Helical Bar and uh, Great Portland Estate. Um, and then again, you've got, again, within London, you've got property companies that focus on retail. And probably the most famous one is called Shaftesbury. And Shaftesbury owns large parts of, of Soho and Chinatown and Carnaby Street, and Shaftesbury is an interesting business because they make a point of making sure that their tenants are all little boutiques. They don't, they don't like 
national chains because they feel that that affects the 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 kind of the ambiance of of those areas that they own and of course recently because these these little shops and restaurants and cafes have had to close down because of the pandemic Shaftesbury itself has been going through a, a, a terrible time. So you, you've got the, the, the kind of the secular trend that is affecting uh, retail, especially big shopping malls. Now you've got the pandemic that's affecting uh, retail generally, but also affecting the use of offices. So again, it's another of these examples of long-term trends and short-term shocks coming together to impact the sector. But do you think, Chris, something that I've thought about for a while and actually mentioned on some of the commercial awareness updates is that this has been happening. So the shift away from the high street, let's say that's been a big one that um, has been talked about for probably the last five to 10 years with more people shopping online, less people going out. And also, again, working remotely, you know, 50 years ago, it wouldn't be a thing. It just wouldn't happen. Whereas even before the pandemic, yeah, sure, it might have only been, let's say, 10%, for instance. And now it's obviously a huge proportion. But surely there must have been, before the pandemic, starting to be a shift in the workspaces that people require for their for their businesses. Well, again, two, two, two things that occur to me. Um, the first is that in terms of e-commerce, you know, there, there are parts of the property sector that are doing well. So there's a, a, a very famous company that used to be called Slough Estates that is now called Seagrow. And a number of years ago, they switched their strategy from being a general property owner. So the two biggest general property owners are uh, British Land and Land Securities, which is now called LandSec. And they, they, they own a retail property, they own office blocks, um, they own all sorts of different types of, of industrial uh, property. But what Seagrow did a number of years ago was they switched to basically um, uh, building and owning uh, what are called big boxes, warehouses. And these are fulfillment centers for e-commerce. Um, there is actually a company called Big Box REIT, Real, Investment, Real Estate Investment Trust, that just focuses on big box ownership. So that, that's another example of how variegated the property sector is. And then, of course, you've got, as, as you uh, were alluding to, Ben, you've got You've got companies that focus in offering shared space, so IWG workspace and, and, and of course, uh, WeWork. And then another sector that has actually done quite well is the storage sector. Um, there are companies like Big Yellow and Safe Store and Lock and Store, and they, they operate storage uh, spaces where people, especially when they're moving house between houses, they can put their stuff before they move it elsewhere. And um, what they've seen is an uptake in, in long-term users of their storage space. And th this is why I think the, the whole property sector is so interesting to look at. There's so many different things happening there. Amazing. I don't want to get too London centric on there, but it's uh, it's where, 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 I'm, where I'm actually born and where I live at the moment. And, you know, I think uh, going to university, I went to Southampton, lived most of my outside, just outside London, lived most of my childhood outside London. Um, but some one of the thrill when I started working in London, and I'm sure that a lot of people are looking forward to it if they're students as well, especially if you're looking towards a big city, is going in that hustle and bustle, um, those big buildings and everything like that. Um, do, you, do you see a situation where... Um, London could either shift the kind of maybe the city of London or Canary Wharf, or do you see there potentially being sort of half built sort of skyscrapers in, in, in London? And what, what do you see as the outlook? I know it's so difficult to tell and we're going through this pandemic, but do you have any sense of what, what it could look like and where, where things could go? I'm, I'm, I'm generally an optimist. And um, when you think of all of the economic shocks and the disruptions that, have occurred in the world, you know, say over the last hundred years and, and beyond. Things like the property market have been able to cope with it. And, and I still think it's going to be the case, even post-pandemic, that cities are very attractive places, especially for young people. And so I'm very optimistic about the future of, uh, you know, a, 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 an internationally renowned city like London, uh, I, I think it, it is going to succeed. Yes, there may well be changes in patterns of 
use of property. Already we're seeing, seeing that actually very interestingly in the city over the last 15 to 20 years, office blocks have been turned into uh, residential uh, apartments and also into hotels. Um, so I think we might see change of use, but I don't think we're going to see uh, over the longer term, a reduction in the popularity of, of cities. Um, I think our working patterns will change. People will commute less. That's got to be good for, for the climate. But um, one of the aspects of the pandemic, which businesses are beginning to focus on, is you can have people working remotely for a while, but those water cooler moments when people bump into each other uh, 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 quite quite by chance that no meeting involved. They bump into each other. They have an exchange. They swap an idea. Those those sparks of creativity. You to get those. You still need to have people working in proximity to each other. Maybe not all the time, but certainly for part of the time. So I'm generally an optimist about what's going to happen in in the property sector. Yeah, definitely. And I think. Um, to kind of touch on something that you you mentioned, um, working right now, we work with a lot of young people, um, also within our own own business as as well. And I think it was actually someone, uh, a leading economist, that, that believed that creativity had dropped when everyone was working remotely. I know some businesses are fully remote regardless, um, but that elements of potentially how it does impact creativity without having those conversations, as you say, by the water cooler, probably not the water cooler nowadays, but um, in the office on lunch breaks, um, going for a social or drinks after, after work. And I think it's so important to still have that kind of connection when you're learning when you're young as you've, you talked a little bit about being young in London enjoying the fact of having a big city lots to do but also actually going into the office and um, taking on those learning opportunities um, that you get not from necessarily a bit of a training course or a, a an hour zoom on a particular topic but actually by hearing how people interact with each other here and hearing how they interact with clients is so so important so hopefully i think especially for the new generation for myself as well always always learning you you know having a bit of it might not be five days a week but having some time in an office talking to people across the business is 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 very important as well and um, the last little bit on this uh, topic i think commercial property as you say it's a very good topic for commercial awareness but also again we could talk for for probably hours about it um is about this idea of the sort of businesses that are doing well or or, or property businesses which are which are doing well warehouses uh, those that are involved in kind of um, e-commerce logistics and things like that um yeah talk a little bit about that we always hear about kind of amazon how many more people they're hiring or um how many more you know packages are expected to be sent uh, in the run-up to Christmas this year um, but yeah how, how, how well are they doing and um, what's uh, how does that sort of business how do those businesses work? Well again it, it's very interesting but what I think is interesting about business generally when you're looking at it is you, you're, you're looking at kind of um, quite small behaviors and when you think about logistics fulfillment for e-commerce and these big warehouses, and and often, uh, you know, in the days when when we used to travel around uh, a lot more than we do now, if you're driving up and down the motorway, you can see very big uh, Amazon warehouses in the Midlands. But for me, the most interesting thing is is what's known as the last mile. So it's getting the package from a fulfillment center to a more local depot, and then actually getting it delivered to your doorstep. And it's that last mile of delivery, which is still for people like Amazon, probably the biggest challenge, which is why they go in for, uh, you know, click and collect and, and other ways of, of ensuring that, that we as consumers can get what we've ordered other than by delivery to the doorstep. But what I think we're going to find as e-commerce develops, and the interesting thing about e-commerce is that in the States, for example, uh, e-commerce hasn't really taken off. It's taken off in this country, less so in the States and less so in Europe. So I think we're going to find in those markets, there's a greater development of e-commerce. But I think what we're going to find in, in this market, in the UK market, is 
quite interesting developments, for example, in the use of drones, which have already been experimented with to, to bridge that last mile, as it were. And what that means in business terms is that undoubtedly there will be new businesses starting up that we've, we can't even imagine what they might be that will step in to achieve that last mile fulfillment function. Amazing. Really fantastic to talk through that topic on commercial property with you, Chris. So with this podcast, what we want to do is finish on a lighthearted, fun story, which has piqued our interest in the last few weeks. Hopefully all the stories have been fun, interesting and engaging. But what we're going to talk about now is something which um, a lot of students are very familiar with, and that is Netflix and um, Disney Plus and all those streaming services, as well as within that kind of the control of content and cinemas. You would have obviously seen, I'm sure a lot of you would have seen in the news that um, Cineworld shut down because of a lack of new releases coming out uh, once stuff like the James Bond film was was delayed by uh, another few months as well. Um, and then also kind of a, a ferocious rise of, um, um, of Netflix this year. Um, Disney Plus, which was launched the previous year as well. So what I wanted to do, Chris, was to get your insights on sort of that market and that control of content, because it's become so, so important for businesses in this space to flourish, especially um, in the midst of the pandemic. For, for me, what's interesting about this is just standing back from it and looking at trends in business. So going going back, you know, 20 odd years, um, the people who who were dominant were basically the the broadcasters, the networks, the people who had the delivery mechanism. And what has happened in the intervening period is that, uh, and this has been driven by technology, the ability to stream, to download, it's that content has become much more important than it than it used to be and so what's interesting about disney plus in particular i net netflix has gone out and created content disney plus uh it its library of content has always been uh i think the most valuable aspect of it um and what it's done through disney plus is basically create its own streaming service and it's had such a massive take up of subscribers that i think it's making disney think well we don't actually need other means of distribution whereas you see going back 20 odd years distribution the means of distribution was the thing if you could control that you could dictate the terms to the content providers um, so I, I see this very much in terms of what is the, well, what, what is the, the shift that is going on here? And it is the focus away from uh, the, the distribution means to, to the content itself. And then thinking about what does this mean for cinemas? Well, uh, it's very interesting because um, I think it was, it, it was, was it over Tenet, Ben? I can't remember. Or was it over... James Bond, but there was a real to-do between Cineworld and the studios when they started, because of the pandemic, uh, threatening to release uh, major films directly to the public rather than through cinemas. And of course, if that source of content is cut off to a cinema chain, then it's kind of out of business. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is that, and this is what's, I think, great about business, um, when big changes are happening, there are always opportunities for small players. And so the people who've actually done well, uh, uh, who've been able to stay open, are the independent cinemas, because people go to the indie cinemas, not to see the latest Hollywood blockbuster, but to see rather more niche European uh, 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 films, for example, and also to see reruns of, of old greats, which, yeah, sure, they could download or they could they could get on video, but they just like going to a traditional cinema. And these indie cinemas have been really good at, at uh, providing uh, um, dinners, for example, really comfortable seating, turning it into an occasion. Um, and that, and that, that's just entrepreneurial spirit, you know, through and through. Yeah, amazing. Completely agree with that. The one thing, though, going back to maybe the, the streaming services a little bit, um, Netflix is due to spend $17 billion on content this year. 
Um, they made a revenue last year of just a little bit more than that. So obviously this year they're going to make they're going to they've smashed their revenue targets already. I think actually um, or will do anyway, given that uh, more people have downloaded Netflix. Um, everyone remembers the the big um, Tiger King um, boom that experienced in sort of March April time, and then have released various bits and pieces which have kind of taken off in a sort of viral nature um, during, especially during um, sort of periods of lockdown as well but now thinking about it i think there's about six seven or maybe eight sort of quite large st- streaming services um all of which are trying to create or get their hands on as much content as they as they possibly can um and to produce the best content it obviously costs the most money they need to pay the actors more they need to um the best effects the best directors um is is there an element where this could turn slightly unsustainable if all of these are trying to compete too much and ultimately um, end up driving each other out of business? It, it's really interesting this because there are parallels with with you know the football industry where all of the major clubs are, are competing for the top footballers. There are parallels with the pharmaceuticals industry where you know you've got to have a pipeline of of um, new medicines coming through that are that, that are going to really have an impact. And uh, I think what's happening in in the whole Netflix arena is it it's kind of illustrative of business in general. If you can be first mover and pump a ton of money in and dominate, then you will make a lot of money. But of course, as soon as you start doing that, you attract competitors. Now, Netflix has got a great brand, and so people naturally go to it. But if if there's a drop off in quality, and the more you're trying to do this stuff, the greater the risk that actually you're going to start producing things that people actually can't be bothered to watch. As soon as you get that drop off in quality, then you're going to run a risk. And the parallel with the pharmaceuticals industry is that that, that it's so hit and miss developing uh, a medicine that works that a lot of the big farmers are kind of outsourcing that to small boutiques, some which succeed, some which fail. And so I think what we'll find with people like Netflix is that at the moment they're bringing everything in-house. But we might find, and this is this is a, a business trend as well, everything ebbs and flows. Uh, you get new trends and then we go back to, to old trends. And what we might find is that actually independent studios that get a reputation for uh, creating brilliant content become the go-to places for streaming services like like Netflix. If they find that they have a hiccup in the quality of their content, then I think they're going to worry because they have pumped so much money into this, but it's all premised on continuing success. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think every time the quarterly results come out for Netflix, you'll see that the, the they might gain huge amounts of numbers of, of, of new subscribers. But if it doesn't meet um, the analyst expectations, um, you'll see their share price dip slightly. In the last few months, they have been able to, even though those expectations are so huge at the moment. Um, but if you start seeing that starts tailing off, they're not quite growing as quickly as they possibly could be, or people think they should be. Um, all of a sudden, sort of shareholders get a bit jittery, and um, the uh, the markets react to that potential um, dip in the growth of places like Netflix. I think we're going to have to leave it there. To be honest with you, we could have spent the rest of the afternoon talking through various topics and everything to do with business and trends and everything. Hopefully, that you're finding super interesting at home. And um, but, Chris, did you enjoy first podcast recording? What did you think? I enjoyed it hugely, yeah. Um, and it gave me, it, it also reminded me of these trends that you see in business that keep on popping up all over the place. Um, and, and so when I was talking about, you know, cinemas and, and pharmaceuticals, for example, in, a, in terms of developing your commercial awareness, the more you can see trends occurring in different sectors and making the connection, that, that is what being commercially aware is, is frankly all about. Amazing. And to be honest with you, we, me and Chris, not really sure how this is going out, what mediums are that will be done as well. But if you are listening to it, because to be fair, we've enjoyed thoroughly just chatting away to ourselves. But if you are listening to it and you have enjoyed it as much as myself and Chris have, um, please drop us reviews, do LinkedIn posts, tell us that you have even emailing uh, myself at ben.triggs, T-R-I-G-G-S at 
brightnetwork.co.uk um, and give a little bit of feedback. And also, if there's any stories that you want us to cover, um, we're doing this hopefully once a month. So it might take a, a month to get to or a couple of months to get to. But we always, always, always want the feedback and also want your recommendations because we want to make it as useful as possible to you. We're going to leave it there for the time with you, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us on this on this podcast. And um, yeah, um, enjoy the rest of rest of your afternoon. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Ben. A massive thank you to Chris. A massive thank you to you guys for listening. As you know, this is the first episode of the Think Commercially podcast, a podcast that's been brought about by students, recent graduates has told us that they want to learn more about commercial awareness and get a deeper understanding of business. So if you've got a review or a bit of feedback, do get in touch, leave the reviews, recommend it to a friend, And we'll be back next month with a brand new podcast, with brand new stories, brand new business insights. So do look out for it and look forward to having you join us again.